Hello and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. Today on the podcast I have with me, and I'm privileged to be joined by Dominic Dom uh, Woolrich. He is the founder of the online platform Law Path, and he's an expert in technological innovation in the legal uh, industry and profession. Dom's mission is to transform and digitize the legal industry to make it accessible to all small businesses and to show to lawyers that there are many non-traditional opportunities in the legal sector. Dom is on the advisory board and is an adjunct professor of the University of Technology Sydney. He is a director of the Australian Legal Technology Association and in 2022, last year, he was a finalist at the Small Biz Week's Young Hero Awards and was voted as one of the top 20 University of Technology alumni. Hello, Dom. Welcome. How are you today? Hi, Chris. I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And thank you for the, the nice welcome intro. Oh, no, look, it's it's fantastic to have you on board. Um, technology, law tech. I tell you what, the, the only thing that doesn't change is change itself. And we are going through this year one of the most fundamental changes in uh, law technology um, with, the, uh, with the introduction of uh, the likes of, and I'll just use just use one AI development uh, chat GBT. Oh my God, what a game changer that is for lawyers and, and what great opportunities it arises. So I'm super excited about tapping into getting some of your insight into the, the current state of law tech, uh, uh, not only in New Zealand, Australia, but it's really international. And, and maybe even just getting your views on on where technology is is heading so that as lawyers, you know, we can we can start, you know, adjusting and you know, to this new world that we're in, because um, it's an exciting new world. No one should be scared about it, and, and and also be excited about what the future holds. I mean, let let's let's start talking about it now. When did you start getting an interest in uh, legal technologies, and how? So I uh, I call myself uh, a recovering lawyer. Um, so I started my career as a as a, a practicing lawyer, um, and I think I'll, I'll just say one note. I think it's very hard to have a conversation these days without mentioning AI very quickly whenever yeah. I'm speaking to lawyers or technologists or anything like that. So you're 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 completely right. It's it's kind of turning things on its head a little bit, and we can definitely dig into that. Um, but yeah, very quick background on myself. I I um, studied. I'm I'm from Australia. I studied law and business and. Well, what part of Australia are you from? It's a it's, it's, it's a big continent. Yeah, it is. Born and bred, big boy. Where did you do your law degree? Uh, at UTS, University of Technology. So, I've, uh, as you mentioned in your intro, I've been lucky enough now to go back and uh, I'm a professor there of legal technology. So, yeah. gone full circle. They had you back. <laughs> they took me back. Did, yeah. To be honest, when I was going through my degree, I never really thought I'd end up teaching there. But um, but it's funny how things kind of change. Yeah. Um, Went on like a very traditional legal path at the beginning. Uh, went to law school and then and took a clerkship at one of the com- big commercial firms here in Australia, Minter Ellison. Yeah. Um, started my career there in the M&A teams. 
Um, really, really enjoyed the work. Um, loved what I was doing. Kind of saw myself being a, a career lawyer. Did you enjoy the hours? Yeah, you know what? I think when you're that, when you're early and energetic in your career, it's kind of a bit of a badge of honor. You know that yeah. that first time you stay past midnight, or that that first time that you you, you do an all nighter. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think change, things have changed a bit now. Um, but I, I I think whilst I was studying, um, whilst I was studying, and then, and then really whilst when I started practicing, I very quickly began to realize that. The legal industry um, is huge, you know, trillion dollar a year industry globally. And it's getting um, bigger. It's not, it's it, not it, contracting. It's, it's getting larger. It's getting yeah. larger. And, and, and I think, you know, a lot of the technology advancements at the moment, there's, there's a lot of fear mongering, um, you know, when you read the, the, the certain industry rags saying, you know, GPT is coming for our jobs or, or AI is coming for our jobs. And I, could, I don't think it could be further from the truth. I mean, I think what it's going to do, it's going to change the way lawyers work, but it's definitely going to increase work for lawyers. Um, um, and that's- yeah, look, I mean, I, I thoroughly agree. I, I think that, that to, the way I look at it for what it's worth, I'm interested in your thoughts, is, is that AI isn't going to be replacing um, any lawyers uh, in terms of um, uh, their output. What it's going to be doing is it's going to augment their output. It's it's a it's a tool to help produce better work product. It's not a tool to replace a lawyer from uh, from producing output. Um, it's yeah. It, I mean, you you've really got to think about it as as being a tool to work better. And 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 forget about Google and Bing and search engines. It's not a search engine. It's it's a tool. It, it's a virtual. It's kind of like a virtualist, you know, this legal assistant, law clerk. Yeah. I don't know how how would you describe it? It's yeah. It, it's it's someone or something that can sit there um, and as you do your work, it can assist you. Um, so would you say like a collaborator? It's like yeah, a, like a, so. a I mean, collaborator. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the the large tech platforms are calling their systems co-pilots, and I kind yeah. of like that idea, right? Like Microsoft's called a co-pilot because that's what it really is. It's a co-pilot when you're doing your work, um, and we are seeing that um, internally in in my company, LawPath. With our lawyers are using it a lot internally and becoming uh, far more productive and increasing their output. Um, and then I, I even saw a study the other day uh, that I think Accenture or KPMG had released saying that um, their consultants, when using some form of AI assistant, were about 10 or 11 times more productive. Um, so I think kind of back to that original point, which is it's not going to replace lawyers. You're exactly right, Chris. It's just going to augment change the way that they work or yep. we work. Mm. And um, that's exciting. And I think if you look at other technology um, advances previously, every time something came in, whether it was, um, you know, even at the beginning of email, right? Like I'm probably a little bit too young to this, but I've heard stories about lawyers were very skeptical about using email early on because they thought that it would take away from drafting and, and certain parts of their work. And then, you know, I don't know a lawyer today that doesn't spend half of their day in their email. So it's a very kind of probably crude example, but I think what it does, it's just going to superpower. It's a bit of a superpower for us um, as lawyers. So really, really exciting. Um, but um, I do want to tell you why I got into legal tech. Because yeah, no, I'm, no, I'm intrigued. Yeah. And, and for our listeners, just um, 
you 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 you'll need to sort of give us a, a date range, so we've got an indication about you you know your your age of when you were starting at, at Minto Allison. Like what, what what sort of years were you there? Yeah, as so a young I, solicitor. Uh, as a young solicitor, I spent uh, four years at Minter Ellison, so uh, my early twenties um, was spent yeah. there. And then, um, so what, 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 are we, what are we what are we talking? Two thousand. Oh, you, um, the date. So, uh, two thousand and ten. Yeah. Okay. Probably so, two. all right. So, by that stage, the fax machine had almost gone. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah we're not talking about the nineties or or eighties here. No. No. Um, I'm. I, you know, I'm. I'm thirty six years old. So I've. Um, I've been in the legal industry now for about 16 years. Um, the first uh, third was what I would call the traditional legal industry, working for one of the large commercial firms. And then uh, the last two-thirds of my career has been really in, in legal technology. Yeah, okay. So I think you were saying that you know while you were working as a commercial solicitor in the M&A department um, at Minter Allison, you, you had, you'd noticed that there was a certain way work was being done with a certain available technology, and and I take it you had a bit of an epiphany. Do you want to share with us that epiphany? Yes, you're you're exactly right. Um, I think a few things um, all lined up. The stars kind of aligned a little bit for me in terms of um, three things happened. Firstly, um, my dad was an entrepreneur, and he was constantly telling me that he couldn't afford lawyers. And um, he would always come to me and say, hey, Dom, can Mintus help me with this? And I would say, look, Dad, that's going to be about $100,000 for that document. He'd say, look, it just doesn't work for me. And then yeah. then starting to realize that about 85% of businesses couldn't afford a lawyer. Um, and there was this big gap of what I call kind of under-advised businesses out there that yeah. were missing out on the legal industry, usually due to cost, but sometimes due to access as well. So a real um, access to justice for that that sort of business sector. Issue. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I think um, I think a lot of times we we think about access to justice and we think about kind of pro bono and individual type um, services. And um, you know, what I when I started to look into the problem, I, I realized that there are some government programs. You know, here in Australia, we have we have legal aid. I'm sure you have something similar in in New Zealand. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and you know, those programs are perfect, but they are set up to help people that can't afford legal help at that end of, of, of the industry. And then you, you look at the other end and you've got corporates and they can afford legal services. But I found that there was this kind of missing piece, which was there were a lot of small businesses out there that um, because they were running a business, it was assumed that they could afford legal services. But this, actually, this, this, this whole SME market, you know, small medium enterprise. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, to pick up your point, it's, it's just an assumption, but you know, there there are businesses, of course, who um, make less money than uh, you know some employees will will earn salaries. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. And I felt like there was a big opportunity there. Um, and then the the second thing that happened is I I took a little bit of a page out of our colleagues in the accounting industry, and I looked at what was happening there back in the two thousands, and you know. Homegrown zero was kind mm. of coming through and totally changing the accounting industry. Yeah, they were platform. You know, they were changing the way that, especially the bookkeepers worked. And I really felt there were a lot of parallels between accounting and legal. And I thought that the next kind of innovation would be platforming legal services and automating legal services. So, um, lining those kind of few things up, I felt there was a big opportunity. Um, and 
and and to to be frank, I, I really felt like the legal industry had not grasped technology like uh, other professional services industries, and there was a very good reason for that, and that was that the legal industry is quite successful. You know, the incentives mm. um, are not really there to change too much um, because we are all doing uh, as lawyers, you know, okay. Um, yeah. I think that's probably definitely changed in the last 10 years. We're getting a lot of pressure from the client side now to to change things and use software, but fundamentally the business model still works. Um, and I guess, or, I, I guess, Dom, if we, if we take a step back, um, providing, I guess, access to, let's just call it legal product, mm-hmm. there, there wouldn't otherwise be accessible. Because we, we, we're talking, I think what you're really saying is you're saying, here we've got a, a a small medium business that just wouldn't purchase. And I'll just use employment contracts for an example. They they just wouldn't purchase the employment contracts because they just you know, it, it, they they can't afford it. It's you know it's more important to keep the lights on in the office or or on the factory floor than it is to to buy these comprehensive employment contracts from a lawyer. Okay? Yep. You've nailed it. But the issue is, is that um, by not having the contracts, it's a, it's a kind of classic but for, is that there's a real risk, and that risk sometimes crystallizes that not having the contract um, uh, makes, uh, if a dispute arises, more complicated and more costly to result. So you've yeah. got this kind of catch-22 going on. And, and and certainly an area I've practiced, I practice in, and it's my area of expertise and interest is dispute resolution. And you've got to say to yourself, why didn't you just spend a few dollars <laughs> on, on getting a, a decent contract that would have avoided this dispute possibly? Or if it didn't avoid this the dispute, it would have made the resolution of the dispute far quicker and less expensive. And of course, Disputes are a zero sum game for businesses. They are, um, you know, they're just spending money. It's going off the bottom line, and it's also a massive distraction. You know, you get you you get the business owner, the management team, tied up in a resolving a dispute rather than providing goods and services to to their customers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris, you are preaching to the converted here. I think yeah. the the difficult thing is that. Um, Really, when a small, we know as lawyers, right, that the impacts yeah. what can go wrong, and we would obviously, if we were ever starting our own small business, having seen what can happen, would make sure we we pull in protection at the beginning. But but actually, well, of course, when but you we're t- we're a little bit more cynical because in our world, exactly, every deal yeah. goes wrong. But that's why that's why people that's why people ring us. They go, yeah. "I'm just ringing you because the deal has gone wrong. I need your help." No one ever rings and says, "Hey, Dom, yeah. I just want to let you know." That deal went so smoothly. Everything's gone fine for the last three years, and we've had no problems. It's a, it's a bit like you were mentioning to me before we started the podcast that you had to go to the dentist. I mean, have you ever rung your dentist up and said, "Hey, I just want to let you know everything's good as far as my teeth are concerned"? <laughs> well, you don't. So you think everything goes wrong. You just become cynical. Exactly. Or maybe exactly. I'm cynical. <laughs> no, no. I think we're all the same there. You know, I really do. I think a lot about this idea that. Legal is typically reactive, and yeah. we um, a big passion of mine is to try and change legal to be proactive. And I think yeah. the first step there is how do we actually um, provide legal help at scale to bring the costs down? 
because and, that is really why it's reactive, right? And, Your clients aren't calling you um, uh, when the deal goes right because you know they they know that look if I'm going to call Chris, he's going to provide services to me. There's likely maybe some cost involved there. I don't really need to tell him it went right, but and, if it goes wrong. They 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 do need it. So you know I think this idea of can we can we swap legal the delivery of legal to be proactive um, is really important. So. So, you know, the employment agreement example is the perfect example, right? Like we know that if it goes wrong, you should have just put in place that very simple employment agreement and then legal's reactive because we have to try and fix it. Whereas if it was, if it was you know, in my view, provided through a platform on demand um, at, a, at a reasonable cost, the barrier for the business to be proactive about their legal protection is so low that they might actually do it. You know, what might even happen is, the business doesn't even have to think about it. Like, let's say, run through an example where we're setting up an employee, we're setting them up through Zero or through QuickBooks or through one of the accounting platforms to get their payroll sorted. Um, why can't the software just provision an employment agreement for them right there and put it in place automatically, send it for e-signature and, and store it? So, you know, you, you're going, you're, you're taking it from a step of being proactive to just being completely automated. Now, I know one of the pushbacks when I speak to lawyers is, well, look. Uh, you know, an automated employment agreement. How do we know it's got the right clauses? How do we know it's correct? How, we, how do we know the award rate's right? Well, hold but, on. The answer to that is you read it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but this is this whole thing about um, augmenting what lawyers do, not, not thinking that this is somehow a replacement. This is just a matter of being more efficient in um, generating, you know, yep. the baseline documentation um, yeah. And and then customizing it as as suits. So I, mean, I don't think anyone should be thinking, "Hey, let's just set up a system where um, everything's just automated and it's all fine." Um, well, it's not because humans um, are you know often unique and and have their own particular nuances and things that they need. And um, you know, I guess Dom, you know, to the other extent to it is. Um, it, it's not just that aspect. I mean, there's there's a product. There's got to be a productivity saving in there, so that lawyers can actually redirect their capacity to to better value add scenarios. Um, you know, is that is that what you see as one of the the, the goals or objectives of of legal tech? Yeah, I, I I think there's two concepts there that are really important. So the first one is. Uh, this kind of concept called unbundling of legal services, which yep. is that in a in a in a task to be done or jobs to be done, there's a workflow that we go through. Let's use the employment agreement again as a, as a basic example. Um, the lawyer doesn't need to be involved in the entire process. You know, part of the process the process can be broken up, and it can be you know you could have non lawyers, you could have technology. And what I really want to see is that we just inject the lawyer at the opportune time when their skill set is needed. Yes. So I think there's that idea, and then that needs to concurrently run with this idea that we need to move away from time-based billing to value-based billing. Sure. So yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. The incentive there is let's draft an employment agreement, two hours of my time, 1000 bucks. Um, that's how I bill. Whereas yeah. actually the employment for the business the employment agreement, it's a value. We don't, they don't care how long it takes to draft. They just want, they just need it. So I think if we swap to a value-based billing system, which a lot of firms are doing that now, um, and then we say, okay, at what point do we just inject the lawyer? So software maybe and automation can maybe do 90%. 
Yeah. And then we have the lawyer come in and check it. Now, I think um, I think then the lawyers uh, are kind of getting involved at the point where no one else can do what we do, which is, Man. as I said, there's going to be a unique circumstance there that software might not have been able to pick up. We can jump in there. But, but you know, 80% of the clauses in the employment agreement, let's be let's be frank, are, are not going to change. And oh, going you're to be right. The same. I mean, there's, yeah, there's some boilerplate and mandatory requirements, you know, statutory requirements that have to be in there. And look, if you look at any employment agreement, um, you, you see the see the common denominators sitting in there. You're right, absolutely. Yeah. Um, look, Dom, something I've noticed is, I, I guess it's lawyers, and I mean, hey, I'm not criticising them. I, I think they should be embraced. You know, trying to come up with their own, I guess, automated template solutions for 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 clients. And I can think of a, a law firm um, I've been dealing with recently, firm of solicitors that specialise in relationship property and you know family trust type work and they have a you know when a couple separates they've got a a a little page where you bang in your you know all your details your name your partner's name you know how much you're all earning do you have a house and you know what's it worth and what's your rental properties and you know you fill that all in and then they they populate that information uh, automatically into a a draft you know, separation agreement. Um, I'm just using that as, a, as an example, but but there's a real fragmentation because this isn't a, a one-off example of of law firms who are trying to en- embrace the technology and, and good on them. I think it's fantastic, but you know, do you think that's an efficient way of 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 approaching it? Uh, I mean, I can see why each law firm would want to have its own IP and have its own offering, but you know, it's it's a little bit like you know, every accounting firm trying to create its own form of zero to a degree, um, or you know, quick, you know, QuickBooks or something. Yeah. What's yeah, your thoughts on that? I, uh, yeah, I, I think that's such an interesting point, and I've learned a lot um, growing a technology company over the ten over the last ten years. And some of that, if I reflect on the few of the biggest mistakes we ever made, it was trying to build our own custom systems before we knew exactly the product market fit of what we needed for clients. So to, to dig into that a little bit more, you know, um, when I uh, came at, uh, I hired a bunch of developers, you know, we have a team of 25 developers and I said, legal is unique. We need to build unique software. So we went about building this unique software, contract management systems, workflow systems. And um, what we found was that um we weren't experts in building contract management systems or workflow systems. We were experts in then in in the in the legal aspect. And so, what I've changed now and how we build software um, at, at this company is we actually look generally across um, all industries and try and find the software that would be the closest fit, and then we like to adapt it because I think the a big key a big Part of legal technology is actually finding IP outside of the industry and bringing it in. Yeah, sure. So for workflow software, you know, there's software developers out there um, or software businesses that have built software development workflows for writing code. It actually only takes a couple of tweaks to then change it to writing legal contracts. Um, so 
I suppose the point I'm trying to make here is you're exactly right. I don't think firms should go out and build their own custom software. I really think that they should find third-party or white-label software that fits their needs and then bring it in and alter it. One, because um, the speed that software moves, you're never going to be able to keep up um, with, with it. But two, and this is something I don't think a lot of people think about, is the maintenance to keep these systems going is extremely expensive. And, and you know, let's you know, if you're a law firm, your core competency is providing legal services, not maintaining a software system that's doing your contract drafting for you. So, I think um, we will see um, a lot of consolidation. I mean, there's a lot of contract management CLMs out there at the moment. Um, 2021 was kind of a boomer year for contract management. And e-discovery was a few years before, and then it was contract management. Um, and so you've got a lot of companies out there, a lot of companies that have actually raised a lot of venture and private equity money to grow. And particularly, I think particularly some, of the, some of the American and European companies have, have literally spent hundreds of millions of dollars on, yeah. on getting this, you know, getting their, their, like their e-discovery platforms, you know, right. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, some might say that they're far from right, but you know, certainly, you know, <laughs> you know it's a big industry. Yeah. And I think they'll start to consolidate soon as well. Yeah. I mean, we've started to see the big, the big players, the Thomson Reuters, the LexisNexis, start to buy up and consolidate, especially in e-discovery. And so, um, I think what will happen is they'll just get more powerful. And if you've built your own custom system, um, my personal opinion is you'll struggle to keep up. Um, yep. It might be perfect for your needs in the first six months because you've built it specifically for you, but it will get harder and harder to maintain. So I'm a real fan of um, of what kind of white labeling or third-party software cool. um, until it gets to a point where um, you just cannot find anything in the world that's already been pre-built for you and you have to build something custom. Yeah, well, look, I, I guess lawyers inherently um, aren't particularly um, trained to be uh, designing software um certainly not coding it <laughs> uh yeah. yeah i mean look there's always exceptions i mean i've got a, a colleague and a friend of mine um i don't know whether he'd say it's been a blessing or a curse but he developed a, a great piece of well i think it's a great piece of software from what people have told me um seen it in action a couple of times called uh key track and it was designed so that you know people who have bought a house can follow the steps that are necessary from you know, bidding successfully, bidding at the auction or signing on the dotted line, to actually literally being given the keys to their house, um, and you know, it's just one of those classic things. A lawyer sort of saw a potential need and and, and developed a solution. I think for him, it had a lot of great expense and stress. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's great when you see. I mean, I, I'm always keen on seeing innovation and, and promoting it. So I don't don't want to sound like a critic, but I, I agree with you. I, I think that. It's the it's the actual software industry who uh, probably best placed to to develop applications that are that, that are going to work and, and can be leveraged. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So yeah, I, I call the uh, I call finding a lawyer that can be a great lawyer and and code a unicorn because there's right. not too, too many out there. Um, and I you mentioned in your intro, so I do a lot of teaching at, at university, and one of the questions I always get is. Hey, I want to move into legal technology. Mm. Should I learn? This is from law students. Should I learn to code? And my opinion is actually no, because 
Um, what I really think is that, to your point again, you know, there are, there are expert lawyers and there are es- expert developers, and I don't think you're ever going to find an expert coder and an expert um, lawyer. And so let's leave the software development to the coders and the lawyering to the lawyers. And if you want to work together, you just have to learn how to talk to each other. But you yeah. don't have to learn the core competencies of each one. Oh, that resonates very loud with me. I'll share, share a little personal story. So in uh, yeah. 1991, my, my first year at Otago University doing first-year law, I was doing a, a commerce degree concurrently, and uh, one of the commerce papers I did was uh, on information technology. It had two parts to it. One part was the, the sort of the infotech where we were using uh, Microsoft Word Perfect. I don't know if you... Uh, yeah. Probably a little yeah. bit, of, uh, yeah. You know, before Windows, this is all on an MS DOS type system. So, so you sort of had the the applications. Uh, I can't remember what the spreadsheet application was called, but um, but but Word Perfect was the processor. But the 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 other paper that I had to do was a computer science paper, where um, for a year I was taught how to code in Pascal. <laughs> <laughs> which I don't think anyone's used for about 30 years. No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, uh, look, uh, it was very fortunate for me that I that I happened to strike it at the last year where they combined the two papers to give you one grade. And and for some reason, I managed to, at the end of the year, get a B for information technology, which told me that I must have got an A plus in the infotech paper <laughs> because there's no way I could have possibly passed the uh, computer science paper because I literally turned up to the exam. It was uh, 80 multi-choice questions with various coding questions. And I, th- I think the first two, I was like, oh, yeah, I reckon I might know all the answers are. From that point onwards, it was pure <laughs> guesswork. Um, but look... Um, yeah, anyway, Pascal, it's like learning, learning Latin, really, you know, a language that, that no one actually speaks. But, you know, there, are, I guess there's some benefits in it. Yeah. Yeah. That's when you knew that you were going to become a lawyer. Yeah, and not- at that stage, I knew I was not going to be coding software. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. great. Yeah. I think um, I think that to, to kind of the advice I, I often give to law students or anyone really looking to get into legal tech is, no, you don't need to learn how to code. Yeah. Um, but there is a basic level of kind of, software literacy that you need and often um that comes in actually um doing some skilling up or doing some education becoming a product manager so yeah. we have um in our software business we have the kind of the core technology team uh we have the lawyers and then we have product managers and they're kind of the translators they're yeah. the ones that, that talk to each other some of them have lead, law degrees as well and they're the ones that kind of go back and forth and say this is legally how it needs to work. Okay, software developer, build it this way or or go to the lawyers and say, technically, we can't do that. We need to do it another way. So I think that's um, that's really important to have those those people between. Yeah, look, I agree. Now, um, am I crystal ball gazing a little bit here? Because we, we were mentioning the the legal publishers who, who provide, you know, search functionality for research. You know, you know if, if you're a litigation lawyer, there's probably uh, it's a rare day if you're not sitting down and running a, a Thomson Reuters Westlaw search or a LexisNexis search or, or having someone run a search for you. Um, but of course, it. this is search engine technology, which we, which we can probably fairly say is is old technology now, and, and that the future is going to be more AI driven. And do you do you think these large publishers? I mean, surely they must be going. Right, we've got to create our own um, uh, AI, uh, our, you know, algorithms as such. Um, 
Well, in fact, actually, algorithms the wrong thing to say because that, that's not the, the right thing for artificial intelligence. But um, they've got to create their own AI offerings, uh, which means you know there'll be a change in how legal research is, is done. It won't be done on a search engine basis. It's going to move towards more of a an artificial intelligence basis. Is it? I don't don't want to be one of those. They call them, you know, these futurists, you know, I'm like, or, or am I way off the mark here? What do you think? Oh, well, you can call yourself a futurist because you're, yeah. you're back on point. So yeah. I mean, it's it's already happening. So um, yesterday I just sat through a demo of um, LexisNexis Plus, which is their new AI powered search uh, tools yeah. that they're launching. Um, I think it's live in America and, and almost live in Australia. So you're exactly right. They're moving away from this kind of, um, you know, search infrastructure to an to an AI search, um, which not only um, kind of provides you with the results, but actually using the AI generates an answer. Yeah. So um, you and and I think the really interesting um, thing to we're going to see over the next couple of years is all of these big players are making the call whether to build or buy. So yeah. Lexus have chose to build; they built it internally. Um, uh, Thomson Reuters, they bought Casetex about two months ago. Casetex it was, is one of the leading AI businesses over in the US. And so they've gone the other route. They've, they've said, look, we're going to buy um, and integrate in. So, yeah, you know, I mean, your prediction is is 100% correct. What we're seeing is um, actually, funnily enough, we just launched this very more this morning, our um, AI-driven search on the LawPath platform. And so... Um, it will actually go into the documents and read them, pull out not just the text and kind of show it to you in highlighting, but actually pull out what it thinks the answer is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's going to be some huge developments over the next kind of two or three years. But I think what's sorry to sorry to uh, yeah. no, 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 carry around yeah. this stuff, yeah. Chris. Um, I think what's really important is um, what we're seeing is most of these providers are not building their own LLMs, their own large language models. Yeah. Uh, they're saying, as we spoke about before, let, let's let leave that to the pros. Let's leave that to OpenAI or Amazon or Google. And what we will do is just plug in a layer on top that uses the power of the LLM, but also uses our data uh, and then combines them to, to give you the output. So, um, yeah, that's... that's I've, so I suppose I'll I'll also join you in saying that that's what I think will happen over the next couple of years. And, and look, going back to the issue of um, I guess you know access to justice or access to 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 legal information, Ausley um, and uh, NZ Lee um, being public, you know, uh, database platforms for for law. Um, one thing I've noticed is you know lay litigants. Uh, are now turning up to court, and some of them are turning up with some, I'd say, not too bad legal submissions that they've been able to pull together by using the likes of Osley and NZ Law. Uh, and, and of course, if if those platforms move to a more AI-driven basis, it will make it more accessible to anyone with internet access and a bit of knowledge, not of the law per se, but probably more around how to um, frame prompting, you know, artificial uh, AI prompting, um, we'll, we'll be able to, to to generate output that's probably going to be reasonably good on a, on a first pass and with a bit of fine tuning um, uh, could get actually really quite good. I mean, do you think that's that's where 
where things could go? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I um, I saw that Osley has already been uploaded to one of the LLMs. So if you're on ChatGPT, it's mm. likely that um, it's probably using some data from there. So I definitely think that, you know, I think the, the role of the lawyer, obviously there's the research side of things, but then the role of the lawyer is then kind of crafting it and 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 presenting it. And so the research um, side of things is probably now what AI can do for everyone. Um, it's not just the skill set is probably beginning, going to become less important. Um, where the lawyer fits is, is they still need to translate that into a legal argument, a submission, or or something there. So I think um, uh, the, what's the the phrase? The kind of like you know. The, the toothpaste is out. The, the, um, the toothpaste is out. You know, yeah. in, in terms of like the data is already in the LLMs, so um, people can access it. And um, as the prompting, as you exactly said, as the prompting gets more sophisticated, um, people are going to get better and better output. And it, we will get to a point where people can turn up to court with, um, with, you know, very good submissions. I think yeah. the prompting is. There's that old saying, you know, like garbage in, garbage out. That is that is so true with AI. If you're prompting incorrectly or you're putting the wrong or you're doing it incorrectly, you're not going to get the, the response you need. But there are now, uh, we have two prompt engineers that work at LawPath. There are careers yeah. now that are just mainly around being able to create, correctly create prompts. And the better you are, the better output you get. Well, here's a suggestion for anyone involved in continuing legal education. Um, you know, whether that's, a, you know, a law society or a law association or, you know, whatever. Um, run a course on AI prompting because it's 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 not like a search engine where, you you know, you type in and say, you know, negligent misstatement cases after 1986, but before, you know, we never um, exclude, yeah. excluding case ABC. Um, it, 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 the prompting is a is an art form, and it's something that um, you can be trained on um, to understand, you know, both the limitations and the capability of AI, and then what to do once you get the output. Because it's not just a, a you know, that's what the whole chat aspect of it is 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 you you literally chatting with the AI to to to, to reach an endpoint in that chat. Which is which is the the output that you are ultimately looking for? I mean, I don't know about your experience with AI, but I very rarely ever um, run without you know or take output on a first pass. Um, it's usually I'll look at the first uh, output and then redefine the prompting or you know narrow or widen things out so that I I get what I'm I'm hoping I'll land at. I mean, do you think there's a there, there's a training opportunity there? Yeah, I I, de I definitely do. I think I'll I'll also make a prediction. I think um, I think one of the the big changes we will see is that these um, companies like the big guys, Lexus, Thompsons, that that have the platforms and the channels, um, part of the work they will do is actually um, helping with the prompting. Yeah. So what we're seeing a lot of now with a lot of the um, AI is that is it not only will you chat to the, the system or in, provide inputs, it will also automatically bring in inputs from other places that you don't need to give it, but it will help the output. So what I mean by that is 
let's say um, I'm looking for an employment agreement. Let's use the employment agreement. That's been a good example yeah. all the way through the chat. So I'm looking for an employment agreement um, using our platform, LawPath, um, or any of the other AI platform, legal platforms. Um, so when I make that search um, and I say, look, draft me an employment agreement or find me an employment agreement, not only will it take that instruction, but it will look at all the past data that I've given the system and it will say, you know what, I know that Dom's based in Sydney. I know that Dom hires these types of professions. I know that he's paid these award rates in the past. And so the output won't just be a generic employment agreement. It'll be, it'll use all that data to say, okay, it's a, it's a, it's a customized employment agreement for this specific purpose. So I think the point I'm trying to make here is that I think prompting is really important now yeah, and will always be important, but I think that the the role of the software companies will be actually to kind of almost provide assisted prompting, yeah. where behind the scenes there's prompting going on that we don't know about, but it's helping us with with whatever we're doing. Well, exactly, and I mean, this is one of the power of AI is 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 being able to say, uh, okay, well, look, you've you've produced this output, and you can literally ask it and say, do you think I've missed anything? And okay, through and say, yeah. well. Chris, as it so happens, I think you failed to take into account, you know, the annual leave of this employee uh, should be increased by this amount of money and that should be in the, in the contract, you know, just yeah. using the employment contract. Uh, uh, example. I, I, yeah. I used the system the other day that I was blown away with. Um, I uploaded a contract and it um, ran a quick review of the contract and spat out um, all the missing clauses. And it yeah. said, I've reviewed 50 other contracts like this. And here are the clauses that I would recommend you put in. Here are the clauses that are drafted incorrectly. And it was a little traffic light system. It just said yeah. like green next to the clauses that were good and red next to the ones that weren't. I thought that um, I got a little, little bit scared, to be honest, because I mean, I think that's uh, one of the roles that a lot of lawyers do is they'll review a contract and they'll go back to the client and say, hey, look, this is what I think. And this this AI system did it very quickly. And I was really impressed with it. Yeah, no, it's look, it's it's an exciting time. Um, it's you know we're right on the cusp of, of you know it's a it, it's a fundamental shift in the way in which law will be done and delivered. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, look, you know we've talked. We talk about um, electronic discovery for a moment. I know it's you know that's not your key area, but you've got experience in it. I've certainly noticed over the years, um, um, it's, it's like a glacial improvement in electronic discovery, um, but it's you know it is becoming more and more important because we're just generating far more documents, and in particularly large commercial disputes, you know, once upon a time we thought ten thousand documents was was a large discovery, you know, now we're getting into the tens of millions, um, you know. It just can't be done without technology now. I mean, we, what's what's your thoughts on the current state of play of uh, of e-discovery platforms and possibly their future? Well, I think um, I will caveat anything yeah. I'm about to say with yes, Chris. It's, it's not my area of specialty, but I did, um, uh, you know, being involved in the legal Australian Legal Tech Association, a lot of the association members are e-discovery businesses, and I think I think that was probably the first area that when we're thinking about this latest wave of, of technology coming into the industry, the e-discovery was kind of the lowest hanging fruit. Yeah. It was really where there was a, a like a burning 
need for technology. Um, and so there's a lot of the e-discovery platforms out there that are now kind of 15, 10, 15 years old. Um, and I think, you know, these recent developments, you know, I think I, one point around AI, just going back to that quickly, is that, you know, AI is not brand new, right? No. It, it's actually been around for a long time. It's just that the last year, the access to AI has just exploded because um, really now anyone with a very basic coding can, can plug into an API. So I think the AI platforms, have, sorry, the e-discovery platforms have been using AI for a while. Well, we better um, for some listeners um, get you to describe what an API is, you know, the, the linking tool that it, that it does. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Um, I've gone blank on the acronym. Um, application Processor. Process interface yeah, or something well, like that. Yeah, it's, it's an interface. Yeah, it's a, yeah. it links it links two pieces of software together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when you are um, using um, two pieces of software and you want to pass data between the two of them, um, that is that is how you do it through through an API. It's yeah. it's and and you know any piece of software that we use these days, it's likely got APIs um, uh, going out to other systems to talk yeah. to it. But more importantly, within a piece of software, you might have uh, the login, uh, the login portion of the software, and then it speaks to an API to the to the actual platform that you see, and then it, it speaks to the API um, uh, that runs, you know, the billing. So everything's kind of connected through APIs. Um, and now any piece of software, they will typically actually have an what they call an open API, which means anyone can connect in. Because these days, what's really really uh, useful is I'm sure a lot of the listeners use legal software that have kind of marketplaces where they can connect other pieces of software in that they want to. Yes. Uh, so having an API, open API is really important. So, sorry, back to your question about e-discovery. Um, so, as you mentioned, it was, well, as I mentioned, it was a low-hanging fruit. You need technology as the cases get bigger, as more documents are required. I mean, I'm not sure, um, Chris, I'm probably out of it a little bit, but I know here in Australia, like some... Um, certain courts or certain judges will actually mandate the use of e-discovery software. Is that? Yeah, it is. It's across the board. And I mean, just okay. when, when, whenever it comes to large-scale litigation, um, you know, the parties have to, you know, are required to work through how the discovery process will be completed um, and the parameters around that. Uh, and, and the judges are only brought in and if there's a disagreement. Um but the um, you know the underlying principles uh, both in New Zealand and Australia is around proportionality, etc. But you know to to avoid discovery being used uh, you know for oppressive purposes, um, you know because other, other, otherwise you're not getting to the real issues and and the dispute won't be resolved efficiently. Understood, yeah. Chris. I, I have a question for you. I know in the US there's um, a, a number of platforms now that will actually um, kind of predict the predict the outcome of of a matter. Yeah. Um, before you go down, have you ever used any software like that? No, I haven't. I've read the reviews of 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 them, and you know the reviews are somewhat mixed. And then you you do have these experts out there saying, well, you know, this is the future, particularly for small claims. Is um, you know, both parties will effectively put in the factual matrix as such, and you know, the the, the software will determine who wins and who loses, and. Look, you know, may, maybe that is something for the future. Um, not quite sure that it, it meets the the requirements of all parties that you know they feel like they've been heard and and had their day in front of a human. Uh, if a computer's just 
churning out an outcome. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that is fundamentally across all delivery of legal. That is the that's the point there that why we know that software won't take our jobs, right? Because yeah. at any point in any legal matter, whether it be a dispute or other, there is a point where you need a human to explain something to another human and software can't do that. So if we yeah. can do all the grunt work under the hood, it can do the drafting, it can do the review, but there is still a point where you need the the translation to be done, especially when it's a lawyer to a to a lay person that, that probably doesn't understand things. So yeah. um I think across the board, that is what we're finding. I mean, we draft hundreds of automated contracts a day, but um there is, you know, we still have the lawyers in our business or externally that do the explanation and work with the client and do the personal um the personal touch. Yeah. Now, do you think um, one of the silver linings to the COVID pandemic is it, it forced uh, us lawyers to actually start embracing technology, particularly like as you and I are doing now? Because this podcast is being, um, you know, we're we're interacting over Zoom. Um, boy, if only I bought shares in uh, Zoom before the pandemic. <laughs> but but do you, do you think there's been an element of 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 the pandemic pushing lawyers ahead to embrace technology, particularly around communications? Oh, most definitely. I think that um, I think that uh, COVID accelerated the adoption of technology and legal across the board. Um, I think that we noticed some really interesting trends beginning of COVID in the small business space. We we saw a huge uptick in clients coming mm-hmm. through the door, and uh, a lot of the feedback we got from clients was the small firms that they were using already just weren't set up to be remote. They didn't yep. have practice management systems in place, the communication systems in place. And so it took them a couple of months to kind of get up everything up to speed. So I think internally the software um, uh, changed a lot for lawyers. I think the other thing that changed was just the expectations of the clients. So pre-COVID, probably 20% of our client interactions were in person or requested to be in person. Now, almost 100% of our interactions are virtual. And I think that's because as we are doing now, everyone's just got used to speaking on Zoom and things like that. So um, people now just, the default is online rather than in person. Yeah, um, look, it's, that's, that's an interesting point. It's kind of a nice segue into sort of the next topic I, I wanted to to get your input into, and, and that is the, the, the concept of remote court hearings. Um, you know, pre-pandemic, almost unheard of. I mean, occasionally you might get a witness for practical reasons, uh, might give evidence remotely, but you wouldn't run a hearing remotely uh, or even case management. Um, you know, it might be done over the telephone, but but you, you don't have the, the element of, of the visual and an AVL, uh, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, the, the, have you, you know, are you seeing that, um, that the law tech industry is is attempting to respond to the increase, um, you know, use now, and, and and I think it's a real positive of using remote hearings when it's appropriate to have a remote hearing. Yeah, I think that I mean even before COVID, right? I, I before I joined Mintrellis and I did a stint um, in the in the courts as a junior criminal solicitor, and yep. um, and obviously we would have dial-ins and videos ins from detention centers and things. So it wasn't it wasn't unheard of. Um, but 
now that people have become comfortable, the industry's been comfortable, the, the courts have become comfortable. I mean, it can only be a benefit, right? I, I, I do think that um, just the idea now that um, location doesn't matter means things can move faster, yeah. which must have a better outcome. Now, I, I get it that, you know, maybe there are some some intricacies of not being in person and, and you know, the, there might be some downfalls there, but as a kind of greater good, having things online makes a lot of sense. I think one of the big uh, big changes I saw during COVID was uh, remote witnessing and remote electronic signatures. Yeah. I mean, electronic signature, I think if you were, if you couldn't get any shares in Zoom, the next one you would have bought is probably DocuSign. Yeah, DocuSign. It's, yeah, totally. That, yeah. Um, that went crazy, especially remote witnessing. And I thought it was really good that the states and the government actually put in COVID legislation to allow for remote witnessing. Um, I'm not sure if they did something similar in New Zealand, yeah. but here in Australia they did, and it looks like that legislation will actually be extended because we were having clients coming in to us, to us creating wills through our system um, through video calls with lawyers, but then not being able to sign them and, yeah. and sitting in their house and they couldn't sign them. And so there was some kind of basic fundamental things that had to happen and so now you can witness through video. Um, so little things like that, I think we probably knew back in 2018 that that was eventually how things were going to end up, but COVID just accelerated it and sort of made it happen. Way. Yeah, look, I mean, I was involved uh, last year uh, in an Australian federal court um, hearing. It was a six-week hearing that um, took place um, based in Melbourne. Um the the only person in the courtroom was was the judge. Everything was was remotely done. Um, all the lawyers uh, appeared remotely. Um, in fact, one of the one of the SCs, one of the senior counsel, was was based in Sydney for one of the party parties, and most of the other lawyers were based in, in Melbourne. But there was a, a a law tech business from Brisbane uh, was engaged and took responsibility for putting up. Uh, online on on the screen, um, uh, all the documents. So you know, a, a lawyer or the judge would ask for a particular document, and and this this business that that had created this platform for electronic bundles, common doc, electronic common bundle doc, you know, documents, right. um, would just you know um, uh, put it up on the screen. But it, it did require running two platforms. So um, the, the the default platform for the audiovisual was MS Teams, mm -hmm. um, but the document platform was BlueJeans. So you, you had to run two platforms to fully participate in the hearing. Um, yeah. But the other thing, the other thing that I thought was 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 quite a, a good advancement with it was hearing was was actually open to the public. So. You could via the federal court's website gain access to 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 the hearing. The other thing that I noticed was that, and it's it's because I don't spend a lot of time on the the federal court of Australia's website, is just the access to documentation that's there um, for all the cases that have been through. Um, I don't think there's really many other courts that have that much available documentation. Just download off the internet or view it on the internet. It's um, it's really quite an advancement, but you know certainly um, this is an area that I, I think that uh, we're going to see more innovation in to provide you know a, a better experience for participants uh, or, or even the public. 
where you know open access to justice um, so that people who are interested in hearings I mean it doesn't need to be um, uh, the Donald Trump prosecution and and Washington <laughs> and Trump um, or the Supreme you know Supreme Court scenario where we I think there was something like 55,000 people connected into that hearing. But, you know, just to be able to watch watch cases. And I mean, for lawyers, the, the area that I think is super exciting is, uh, particularly for litigators, I'm a litigator, um, is being able to watch um, very experienced counsel um, at their art, you know, whether it's cross-examination or, or submissions, um, yeah. which otherwise would require you to, uh, you know, walk up the hill or down the road to the courthouse and and hope that you're turning up at the right time when, you know, that part of the hearing's going to take place. Whereas now you can have it running in your chambers or your office and uh, be doing something else and then go, all right, this is the this is the exciting bit. This is this this is this is when senior counsel's gonna say, but you were the one that did it, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think even pre um kind of pre the courts uh, online dispute resolutions, some great companies that have popped up during COVID. There's one out of Melbourne called a mediation. There's a couple out of Sydney yeah. that have popped up. Yeah, doing, as you mentioned, you know, doing the, the assistance work to make sure that the documents are all in the right spot or make sure that the video comms are good or make sure that the, the negotiations are um, can be done online confidentially and and correctly. So it's a really good space and I'm I'm yeah, COVID was obviously a horrible thing, but I think in terms of legal technology, it did actually push the industry forward. Yeah. Now, also with all these advantages, there's also risks, and you know, one of the risks is is confidentiality. Okay, so if we've got all these lawyers who are now, you know, being able to work remotely, you know, whether that's at home or you know on the beach or you know wherever outside the office, the security issue and the the risk of data breaches must increase. Well, that must be right, isn't it? Yeah, most definitely. I think that is always a layer that lawyers need to think about, especially when they're purchasing software that probably other industries maybe don't need to think about as much, which is the the privacy and the confidentiality issues. So I know, you know, a big burning question at the moment around the use of all these AI systems is where does the data go? Where's the data being stored? Where's the LLM actually doing the computing power, uh, the com- the compute to to generate the output? So, um, you know, very very uh, most law firms have a policy at the moment that says you cannot put in information or specifically confidential information or personal information to chat GPT. So don't put in the prompt. My client Jade Smith has been charged with X <laughs> offence. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. Um, because that data is going straight over to California where it will be, um, uh, you know, analyzed and then sent back to you. So um, that will most likely be breaching your obligations. Um, well, you- that is why we've probably seen some releases recently. Um, OpenAI have released uh, GPT Enterprise where they've actually said that the data, um, it still leaves, it still goes outside of your system, but... They, they, they delete the data and there's additional confidentiality things. I think Amazon has just, or AWS, Amazon Web Services, have just released their new LLM called Bedrock, which actually uh, puts an instance onto your own system. So the data actually never leaves your system. So yeah, I think there's some solutions out there, but um, lawyers should be 
careful when they're um, specifically looking into AI and always double checking the the confidentiality and, and, and privacy. I think, Chris, you know, to your point around documents leaving the office or, um, you know, my my gut there is that we 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 dealt with a lot of those issues when law firms started to use cloud software 10, mm. 10 or so years ago. I mean, I don't think there's many um, law firms left that are using kind of on-prem servers. I think everyone's now got pretty comfortable that they're using Microsoft 365 or something like that. Um, and you know, everyone knows when we use Microsoft 365, our emails are stored in Microsoft's database, um, which is you know usually in Australia. But the the, the information is moving around. Um, so, but I think there's some additional. Uh, everyone got very excited with AI, and I think maybe uh, some people kind of jumped the gun a little bit in using it with with information where they, it wasn't bedded down where it was going. Yeah, and and look, whilst you know I don't really hear other soft, and I mean. I certainly think about it myself because I, I do. I regard myself as a bit of a digital nomad when it comes to comes to working. Is the 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 fear of losing you know a valuable de- device? When I say a valuable device, a, a device that's got information on it of value, um, laptop, mobile phone, etc. So you know I've had to think about okay, well, well, what security mechanisms have I got in place um, so that if that happens. I'm reasonably confident that that's not going to cause a threat or a loss to someone else, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's it it it, it it's a, it's it, it's something I think about. I mean, is this something that law techs thought about and, and and wanting to 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 provide solutions with across the board? Yeah, I think that law tech um, we we would we default to the the software providers. Yeah. The, Really, you know, so for example, basic security around 2FA, you know, making sure that you have 2FA on all of your software. Some listeners won't know what 2FA is. Yeah, yeah sorry, two-factor authentication. Yeah. So when you log into the software, you you get a uh, a text message with a with a code or you get, um, you know, you have the authenticator app on your phone. Yeah, hopefully um, you don't lose your phone. Yeah, hopefully <laughs> that's right. Um, but I think, you know, we all know now when we log into our banking yeah. Uh, there's really always some kind of 2FA protection there. Um, I know that, you know, the accountants, Zero have made it mandatory on their system. I know Salesforce recently did, Google yeah. have. So um, any software that you're using, you definitely should be using 2FA. Um, and if I, and to, your, to answer your question, I, th- I think the security side of things us as lawyers, we outsource that to the to the security software platforms. Well, well, that's uh, to the extent that they do. Like, I, I look, it would surprise me if every lawyer in Australia and New Zealand could hand on heart say that they're confident that if um, someone got access to one of their devices, that the um, that there are mechanisms in place to protect their clients' information. Yeah. Um, I mean, the reality is, is, is that um, you know, a um, the the level of awareness of those threats across the the profession varies. Um, you know, there are some people who uh, don't even have passwords on their on their devices, uh, and some of those passwords, I suspect, aren't particularly robust. Password. Um, yeah, I, I know that there was a report that came out recently that said hackers um, actually choose professional services firms because yeah. typically they have the lowest security and the highest 
what they would call ROI from a, from a hacker's perspective, which is usually the information that they can get um, allows for the biggest ransom or, or whatever it might be. And we've seen some pretty big high-profile cases here in Australia recently with law part, law firms being hacked. Yeah, well, I mean, the the average forensic IT consultant, and I, I use, use them quite regularly, um, can open up most devices within a matter of minutes just using standard software that's actually reasonably available on the internet, um, yeah. uh, it, which is quite frightening that, you know, I mean, once upon a time, you know, back in the day, all the files were were, were sitting in a filing cabinet, you know, to, to have a data breach, someone would literally have to come into the, the law office and take the file. But, you know, as, as you rightly said, using Microsoft, you know, 365 and it's all sitting on a data warehouses um, somewhere in New South Wales. Um, you, you could be anywhere in the world if you if you if you know the um, the credentialing to get in. You've got yeah. access to the to the master key, and, and away you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, I don't know your opinion. I, I do feel like there are checks and balances in place. Um, Mostly, uh, let me rephrase. I think it's, I think data breaches are obviously becoming more prevalent because there's just so much more data out there. People see mm. the opportunities, but I do think that as a whole, we are in a much better space having our documents sitting in Microsoft 365 than sitting in a filing cabinet. Yeah, do you, yeah. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, look, I am with you with that. I think there's that you can use the technology to make it far more secure than if it was in hard copy, um, in in so many ways. Uh, but look, it, it's a conversation I don't think any lawyer wants to have with a client is to say, I've had a data breach and you know, your your confidential information is now no longer exclusively held um uh by known individuals. Um and and, and it's you know, it could give rise to significant potential liability and I think it's only a matter of time before, you know, that hits the news headlines at some stage. I don't want to be the prophet of doom and gloom and I hope it never happens. But um, look, the tech is out there um, uh, to protect information, um, and it's worth investing in it and, and and using it. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Hey, look, I'm going to wrap up our podcast, Tom. I, look, this has been fascinating. It's a good little dive into where we're at currently with uh, with law tech and where law tech is is, is potentially going. It's an exciting time. Um, unfortunately, I think this is one of those things where. You know, I think give it twenty four months, and a lot of what we've talked about is probably going to be obsolete. But it's a hey, look. You, you need to stay on top of developments and where things are going. You know, you either uh, evolve or you die. It's uh, it's it's one or the other when it comes to these things. So, thank you. Really appreciate you being on board the podcast. It's been wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much, Chris. It's been a really good chat, and we'll probably have to have a, another. Another session in 24 months to talk about all the new technology that's come into the industry. Yeah, no, I'd look forward to it. Okay, well done. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Yes. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's p-a-t-t-e-r-s-o-n dot c-o dot n-z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application and the future of the law here down under.